Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this two-part series, we'll be discussing the 1999 Columbine High School Massacre, in which two boys attempted to bomb and then shoot students at their school. Alongside this, we will also touch on two linked events, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 and the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007. This is part two of this two-part series, so if you haven't listened to part one, please do go back and listen, because that is where we covered the very much the timeline, the um, what happened in Columbine on the day in terms of the failed bombing and the shootings, um, and then also talked about kind of Dylan and Eric and their childhood and what what the kind of steps were that brought them up to to this place so definitely listen to that before you listen to this um otherwise it might not make huge amounts of sense and at the top of the show i will remind you to follow me over on instagram i'm at when it goes wrong pod uh, and do rate subscribe do whatever the app you're on asks you to for the podcast it is always much appreciated so in this episode we're going to talk more about what why we're going to talk more about why so why did they do it and it's generally accepted now that eric fits all of the traits of a psychopath which i found quite interesting because i didn't obviously we hear so much about psychopaths these days if you are interested in it the psychopath test by john ronson very interesting very good book and so but you don't really like see them do you know what I mean? Like in real life, I'm like, oh, wow, they actually exist. He, we think he was a psychopath very much because he was, he put this front on when he was in front of others and he was able to kind of convince others very much of what he wanted them to think. So everyone from his parents to teachers to the police was caught in this way because if you think about it, he was being reported to the police. They didn't do anything about it. He went to diversion. They thought he was like, totally reformed and thought he was like amazing um his parents believed that he wasn't doing anything anything bad he just was yeah very much able to put this to this this other face on and he bragged constantly about being an amazing liar and about how he had fooled everyone all the time also in his writings he compared himself regularly to god uh, which clearly shows that he had quite the ego And he really wanted to create this spectacle and something that would scare what he called the zombies. Basically, anyone that wasn't him was a zombie. Um, And he really was was kind of putting it out there. And and when when they talked about the massacre, he really thought it was kind of like an act. Um, In one of his writings, he wrote, "The the majority of the audience won't even understand my motivations. Like the like talking about the people he's kill, going to kill as a as the audience, it kind of shows his kind of narcissism, I guess. And he really he wanted to create terror, and he wanted to kill as many people as he could. Is is what it came down to. And so Dylan, on the other hand, was not a psychopath. He seemed, and what they call him now, was like an angry depressive, uh, which he was clearly very influenced by Harris, but he did think in some ways of himself and so in one of his writings he wrote the real people in brackets gods are slaves to the majority of zombies but we know and love being superior either i'll commit suicide or i'll get with harriet and it will be nbk for us 
as in natural born killers, as in do the massacre. And then he also wrote, if by love's choice Harriet didn't love me, I'd slip my wrists and blow up Atla- blow up with Atlanta strapped to my neck. And Atlanta was one of the bombs that they had built. And so, yeah, clearly very different because if you read Dylan's books, they, they seem to be much more driven by kind of love and this need to, to fit in and and still, still a lot of anger and, and violence there, but in a very different way to Eric's, which was kind of pure wrath and pure anger and this want to kind of kill and hurt people so dylan himself kind of seemed to be really confused between whether he was suicidal or homicidal very much definitely was suicidal at the beginning um but then seemed i think to be very heavily influenced by eric to kind of turn the other way and again, in one of his journals, he wrote, the pain multiplies infinitely, never stops. Maybe going NBK with Eric is the best way to get free. I hate this. So yeah, Dylan was not a psychopath. Eric got joy and satisfaction out of killing and hurting people. Whereas Dylan, I think, saw it as his way out. And I don't... Do, do, do. I thought I put a quote in here. But there was a good quote, which was basically saying like, Eric Eric did this because he wanted to hurt people and take everyone down with him. Whereas Dylan just wanted to die and didn't really care if others died at the same time. Which I think kind of summed it up quite quite well. And on the day, if you actually look at like the actions of what happened on the day, obviously they both did it and they both went through with it, but the majority of bullets and prep and bombs and everything was done by Eric. Dylan did do it and definitely was still on the same page, but but a much lesser extent. And it seems like when you read about their kind of motivations, a lot of people seem to fully put the blame on Eric and almost seem to like forgive Dylan but I I just think that Dylan went along with it I just don't think you can you yes it was yes Eric clearly was the instigator but Dylan could have not done it and he could have told other people about it but he he went along with the ride too so he's he's equally to blame so that is why we think they did it there were some kind of other theories which linked into this which um you can you can see what you think so the first one was around bullying so there's lots of reports of bullying that seem to go either way there's reports of them being very heavily bullied and there was apparently because they were like very close friends with each other and they did have a wider circle of friends but they were very close friends with each other that there was kind of all these rumors that maybe they were gay and obviously that then in high school in the in 99 was was something that led to a lot of bullying and, and hard times for them so there was a lot of reports around that but then there were also a lot of reports that actually they were relatively popular they had a wide social circle they had friends that they they were they weren't these kind of like social outcasts that people think that they were and so it's a hard one to say and so i think when people talk about bullying they kind of say like oh they were so bullied they were bullied so much that one day they just snapped and they they had to come in and kind of shoot these people but i think it's very clear in this example that they did not snap they had been planning this for literally years and it wasn't a snap decision so did bullying play part of it 
potentially, yes, I'm sure. I mean, no one has a great time at high school, do they? So yes, I could see that being a contributing factor. Do I think it was the main reason? No, I think the main reason was Eric being a psychopath and wanting to to do that. So yeah, it, it seems odd. I also find the fact that they were literally so close to graduating... I think that they wanted to do it. Eric wanted to do it to scare people and to make a mark and to and to to blow up as many people as he could, like we said yesterday, to like, like we said last time, to really show off like the deadliest attack in in, in U- U.S. history. He wanted to go down and be remembered, which sadly he is because I'm talking about him now. It wasn't like oh, I I it's about bullying in school, as far as I can see from reading about it, anyway. thing that came up a lot was guns and gun control and I think again like it's an interesting one because clearly when we look at it we talk a lot about guns like I said last time it was a failed bombing I mean that's what a lot of my questions are how did they get all this bomb stuff and how did they know how to make these bombs I mean he made napalm like how so I think that's one but this of course reignited the debate on guns which i think is fair for it to happen i think that i don't like i find this hard to talk about because from my personal point of view i don't get guns like i've always lived in in countries that, well other than when i lived in america i've mainly lived in countries that don't use guns or see the kind of need for them obviously america has a very gun culture and that is up to them but i just i don't personally i don't get it like unless you are shooting animals for like specific reasons like protection or food or whatever then fine but i I just don't get it and so they both boys managed to get the guns whilst being underage and yeah it just doesn't seem great that they could get such easy access to guns and the amount of guns and also like the caliber of guns that they got as well it just i don't know i think i don't i just don't get it i just don't get guns in america and i rewatched bowling for columbine actually when i was researching this and actually it doesn't really talk about columbine that much it does cover some of it but it mainly is talking about guns and then like the number of guns in america gun culture and that type of thing. So I think, of course, that must have contributed in some way. But I also do think that, you know, some of the deadliest shootings in the world, especially very recently, have been in countries that don't have guns and don't legalise guns. I'm thinking like the New Zealand mosque shooting. There was the one in uh, Scandinavia recently as well. And so it must have some influence, but how much, I, I don't know. And then one of the main things that people kind of rallied against i guess was heavy metal music and video games which really i i mean again i don't get it so they heavily kind of criticized this 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 music that was on the scene especially at the time marilyn manson who obviously had a you know controversial view 
maybe at the time uh, but they interviewed Marilyn Manson in Bowling for Columbine if you haven't seen it recently and they kind of say like oh what would you say to the gunmen if you could talk to them now and he basically was like well I wouldn't talk to them I would just listen to what they had to say because clearly that's what no one did right <laughs> like no one really listened to exactly what they were saying and yeah it both boys played Doom and Duke and they kind of reference them in some of their writings like oh we're going to reenact this and this and this but it was like a real combination of lots of stuff it wasn't just like oh i played doom and now i'm gonna totally do what they said i just yeah i just think that there maybe there's a relate like a correlation but i mean i assume there's millions and millions of people that have played doom and duke and didn't shoot people so it's hard to really know but I guess that could influence some of their thinking. They obviously were both users of the internet at an early age, which also could have gone in there. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. I think if you compare it to some stuff recently now, I actually just listened to, I think it's called Down the Rabbit Hole, something like that, Rabbit Hole, from the New York Times. And that talked very much about like internet radicalizing youth and how easy it is to kind of be radicalized by content and algorithms promoting content and that kind of thing which i think is a very relevant thing now so that that just makes me wonder whether actually maybe i'm dismissing it when i shouldn't don't know give me your thoughts please so yes that was that was kind of about the reasoning i i do think it it just came down to them them as people i think fundamentally from my point of view but i would be interested in what you guys think in terms of what why why they did it and i was thinking about this just before like i was a teenager but i was never a teenage boy um and i don't really have that much to do with kind of teenagers or the youth um so i'm probably not the best person to to try and understand them so yes i'd be very interested from you uh what what you think and i know i've got a large amount of american listeners as well so it'd be really interesting to know what you think so what happened afterwards? So following the shooting, the school remained closed until the following school year uh, because they did a huge investigation, mainly because the police weren't sure whether it was just those two or whether they had other people kind of in cahoots with them. And they eventually determined that no, they didn't, other than the people that kind of knew something was going on. Uh, so like I said, they talked to a lot of people about like the bombs and the guns and stuff. So there was people that knew. And then there was also their friend that helped them buy the guns as well. So they found out all of them, but they didn't really prosecute or push them. Uh, the The blame was very much on on the two boys. And then it, yeah, the police were generally really closed through the investigation. There's a lot of the content out there now, but it took the police a long time to actually release all of the content. And that angered a lot of the families and even, I mean, even now a lot a lot of the stuff is out there, but not everything. So like a lot of the writings and stuff are out there, which I've quoted, but a lot also is still hidden. A lot of the tapes are still hidden um, and, and haven't been released. And so, of course, it's America. So the families of the students who died or were injured sued the families of the killers and they settled for a multi-million pound case, which was split between all the families, um, the people, families who had someone who died and also those who were injured. And there was also an attempt to sue the police 
due to the fact that obviously the police have been alerted to Harris and his violence and obviously both of them were in diversion but they had failed to act or to do anything else uh, but none of those claims were successful mainly just because of kind of government immunity. There were a lot of memorials of the event. Uh, the school was eventually remodeled and the library was removed because obviously that was where most people had died. And so they put an, a, a kind of wide glass atrium in its place um, and then they built further memorials around the school, which you can visit. And I guess it, that brings us on to the, the other kind of aftermath, which is this case got so much coverage, mainly, like I said earlier, because there was so, so so much content in this case. And unfortunately, that meant that it inspired a lot of other troubled people who kind of started to idolize them and wanting to do something similar. And so since then, there have been a lot of cases where they've stated that Harrison Klebold were kind of their inspiration for why they did it. There is luckily quite a lot the majority of them were kind of thwarted before anything actually happened but uh, some of them unfortunately did and one of those which we will cover now is the virginia tech shooting and in the virginia tech shooting the shooter uh, stated in some of his writings that he was inspired by uh, harris and klebold so moving into virginia tech then so we'll start at the beginning. So Sung-Hyu Cho was born in South Korea, but immigrated to the US when he was eight with his family for better fortunes. And he had a lot of behavioral issues growing up. So he was very quiet and rarely spoke. And he was at an early age diagnosed with what's called selective mutism. So he couldn't couldn't speak to some people and had a very bad social anxiety disorder, bad depression, and he was reportedly, because of all of these things, bullied very badly throughout school. And so because of this, he was put in the special education area of school under the area of emotional disturbance, uh, which meant that he got extra support, extra help. Uh, it also meant that he had therapy and a psychiatrist to kind of help him throughout his development. So clearly had some issues, but was also getting the help and support in order to uh, manage those through the school. When he finished high school, he enrolled in Virginia Tech, uh, originally in business information technology, uh, before he changed to English and he reportedly wanted to be a writer. And when he enrolled, the schools that he went to, which were kind of aware of his mental health and his history, weren't able to inform the uni of, of anything that they knew and the kind of special measures that he was he was having due to, to, to privacy laws, which makes sense um, from a privacy point of view. Um, I know that, that that type of information isn't readily shared. But that meant that the uni, Virginia Tech, didn't know that he potentially had these issues and, and clearly needed support with them. Reportedly through uni, his behaviour and his mental health really deteriorated. And in his junior year, he started doing some weird things. So he started writing like odd, like really violent stories as part of some of his courses, uh, which were which were quite disturbing. And he started allegedly harassing two women on campus and kind of stalking them. And in 2005, he was declared mentally ill by a special justice and ordered to seek outpatient treatment uh, but he was not institutionalized so based on the kind of stalking and harassing claims he was he was claimed this and and yes was told to to get treatment but because it was only outpatient treatment that he was 
uh, ordered to do. It meant that there was a loophole loophole in the law at the time, which meant that you were still able to purchase guns. So if you had been declared mentally ill and been institutionalized, it meant that you were barred from from buying weapons. Uh, but in this case, uh, because it was all done as an outpatient, he was still able to purchase guns. And so on April 16th, 2007, Cho started out the day in his dorm where he lived with five others. And he walked over to one of the buildings next door, which had, again, student dorms. And he just entered the room of a girl called Emily Hilscher and shot her. And when shots were heard, the senior RA, Ryan Clark, went to investigate and was also shot and both died on the scene. And there was a lot of speculation that Cho kind of chose Hilshire because there was like unrequited love, anything like that. She she had rebuffed his attentions, but there actually had been no real evidence of this and no, it wasn't kind of clear in the writings that he did or anything like that. So it just seems a bit random why he happened to pick that building and that room and then just shoot someone. It, yeah, there was never really any anything that that kind of made sense in that front. So after that shooting, he returned back to his own dorm and changed out of his bloody clothes. Uh, He then proceeded to delete his emails and remove his hard drive from his computer. And it's believed that he then went off and disposed both of these. Two hours after that, he went to the post office and posted a pack of letters and tapes to NBC, uh, which were kind of similar to the tapes from Columbine and stuff. So all these kind of, you know, like a manifesto again of, of what what he thought and why he did it and that kind of thing but a lot of this hasn't been fully released mainly because a lot of it apparently was not very coherent but there were references to to Harris and Klebold in those in those writings so once he had done that he headed over to the main hall where the classes were going on and again this was clearly something that was very well planned it was not like a snap decision He took chains with him and he chained the front doors to the building shut and added a note on them that the doors would, were if the doors were opened, then a bomb would explode. So that obviously would put people off kind of running in. And he proceeded to go into loads of the classrooms and basically just shoot as many people as he could. It sounds awful, really, because some were kind of, you know, people were trying to run away from him and being shot. People in the different classrooms were trying to barricade the door. Some were, were sex- some were successful, but some were not. A group managed to hide in a locked room and were safe. Uh, the stories of, like, people trying, you know, being really brave and, like, trying to tackle him, but then were also killed. Yeah, it just sounds awful. It sounds much more, like, methodical, I guess, compared to, like, Harrison Klebold, like, when I was saying where... They would just kind of do it really randomly, whereas clearly with Cho, he was kind of just going into a room and just shooting literally everyone in the room. So, yeah, it was just it just sounds utterly awful. And so some students jumped out of the windows to try and get away and were injured in the fall. And yeah, just awful, awful stories really as part of this. Um, I can just imagine how utterly terrifying that must be. And 10 minutes after this, the second shooting, obviously he'd shot the, the two in the morning, then SWAT did enter the building through a different door uh, pretty much straight away. And when Cho spotted the SWAT team, he shot himself and died at the scene. Uh, but before that, he in total, he had managed to kill five teachers and 25 students, which is just awful. And it... 
yeah, like it did lead to some kind of reformed gun control, but again, like I said, gun control is not hugely successful in America and a lot of the changes that went in were then kind of lobbied and repealed and it doesn't really feel like there has been much success off it. So yeah, it's it's very it's very sad in that case. And so clearly what sadly what Harris and Klebold did get is they did get a legacy because of of people like this that that are doing this thing. And I just want to know here, um, before we move on to what we kind of learnt, and I just want to know, we've obviously talked about mental illness quite a bit in this. I would just like to very, like, pointedly point out that mental illness does not correlate to violence very often at all. It just so happens to be in the case of these ones that we've talked about as well. Um, but in reality, we should not judge or think that uh, people with mental illness are going to become violent or are going to do anything like we've talked about because the vast majority do not. Okay, what we learnt. Luckily, quite a few things, which is good. Um, you would hope that we get something something good out of this, right? So the first thing that we learnt is that it really changed, we've got a really changed view of what a school shooter or what a mass shooter looks like now. And I think that that's very important. I think back in the day, potentially we always thought there would be someone who was quite like a loner and an outsider and all of this kind of thing. In reality, that's probably not true. And it's really hard to stereotype who a school shooter will be or any shooter should would be. And we need to be stay really open in think in our thinking and in our ability to check and to see who is gonna do this and i think that that is really key they don't it's not someone that's been bullied or bullied bullied and then it just snaps i mean maybe in a couple of cases that is the case but we need to be open to other options as well and linked into this which i think is super important is that we believe like leaks threats and signs a lot more now because if you think back to harris and klebold they were telling people especially closer and closer to the event they were telling people if you look at cho he was doing violent stories like there are signs and i think i hope anyway we are much better at addressing those signs and taking them seriously and not just looking at someone and being like oh you just made a joke <laughs> actually going oh is there something you know underneath here that we really need to go and discuss and talk about and understand further and i think that is a really good thing obviously you don't want to take it too far the other way <laughs> and then accuse everyone of everything but just being aware and and getting the right level i think is is really important and and something that's changed a lot i remember when i went to school in america they had like a like someone had rang in like a bomb threat and they and we had to, i remember because we i it was like the middle of winter but because american schools were so hot like everyone no one wore coats and stuff like in the uk everyone wears like everyone was just wearing like 
not like summer clothes because you like drove to school and then went into school like you had no time to get cold anyway um they called in this like bomb threat and then they took it totally seriously and we had to all evacuate into the into the bleachers on the football field and like sit there and wait until like the bomb squad had come and like cleared it all and then anyway it turned out to be a hoax that like the boyfriend of someone who wasn't very pleased but it, you know, it was it was taken fully seriously, and I'm very glad that that was the case because potentially back in the day you might have rang that and been like, "Oh, that's silly, hang up." So yes, an important one. The second thing that we learnt um, is actually how they approach gunmen and what they do. So you can see that the difference between the first between Columbine and Virginia Tech. In Columbine, they waited and didn't go in. In Virginia Tech, they totally stormed the school. And that's generally the approach that they're taking now with active shooters is storm the school, get that person as quickly as possible. Because actually, yes, it might be dangerous for you to storm the school, but it means that you will get to that person quicker and hopefully take them out much quicker. So therefore, you will save lives in in terms of of what's going on. So they very much changed their their kind of active shooter protocol, they call it, so that then it hopefully will lead to less deaths overall, which can only be a good thing, right? Um, And then the third thing that they have learned is very much preparation within schools. So... I think after all of this, you know, there's all those tales of like metal detectors and and uniforms so that people can't hide guns and all this kind of stuff. But in reality, there has now it has meant that there is better preparation for this so that if it does happen, people know what to do. People can take action that makes sense. They've done things like, you know, being able to lock classrooms from the inside because for a long time you could only lock them from the outside, which meant people couldn't lock themselves in. Um, and they've got this kind of like protocol and and view of how to manage this situation, which, I mean, it's tragic that we have to do that. But if we, if this is going to be something that is a threat in the world, then at least we can do something about it and prepare not to. And also around that, you know, the ability for schools to really like look out more for these types of students and support them and help them and hopefully mean that we would never get into a place where someone felt like they had to do that, right? So, so that really is, is the hope in, in terms of what, what goes on. So I think, you know, we have, we've moved on a lot from this. So yes, moving on to references then. I read a really good book. I read a really good book called Columbine. It's by Dave Cullen. I bought one of the later editions um, and yeah, excellent. It's really like, it's one of those non-fictions, which are my favorite, which are where you can, you want to read it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not even oh, I need to read this for a podcast or for whatever. Like I wanted to read it. It was it was just really brought it to life. It goes into so much detail. It covers a lot more about the victims, which I didn't have as much chance to cover in this. Um, it covers the a lot about the, the them growing up, but also a lot about the coverage and the police afterwards. It covers like there was an FBI guy that got really involved in it all and did all of like the psychoanalysis and stuff. It's just a really good book. So I highly recommend that. Um, They also have replicated some of the journal pages in the back of it, which are also really interesting to read and see. Though, I mean, the handwriting's awful, so I can't read half of it, but (laughs) you might be much better than me. Um, So yes, 
hugely, hugely recommend that. There's also a Slate article, again, by the same guy that wrote it, which is like half of kind of what it is, which was... Uh, yeah, it was called At Last We Know Why the Columbine Killers Did It, which is like a really kind of abridged version of some of the book. But I re- if you're ever, if you kind of interested in this, definitely give it a read. And you 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 want a good nonfiction. Highly recommend that. There's just loads of stuff out there on the internet. Loads of stuff on YouTube. There's loads of photos. Oh, and the other one is there's another book online called Comprehending Columbine. And the actual whole book is just like on the internet on like a website that you can read. And that was very good. So I read that had a lot of content around like the Oklahoma City bombings and the kind of correlations with that. And yes, was also a good one and free and on the internet. So I've got a link to that in the show notes uh, but yeah like i said it they there's just so much content out there on the internet already so many photos of like the crime scene they released photos of like the two killers like dead like ones they'd like shot themselves which i mean i don't recommend looking at but it's kind of blurry so it's not the worst thing in the world but yeah they, they, they that's but that's the level of stuff that's out there in terms of the actual kind of photos that are out there there's also the video footage of the cafeteria because they had just put up tapes to do that. I hadn't got all of it. I think it started from like 11, 14, something like that. So you can watch that again. Terrifying, but it kind of, it, it, it really shows like, like their, their moods, I guess, and like how it works. But yeah, just huge amounts of content out there. There's also a very quite active subreddit on reddit which is r columbine and that has loads of photos on it again a lot of photos you don't see elsewhere a lot of photos of like the victims again a lot of photos of like eric and dylan growing up and i actually i only looked at that stuff last night actually after i'd written the script for it and it and it was weird because they looked so normal (laughs) like i know that that sounds odd but like I don't know. You, you. There's videos of them and photos of of Eric and Dylan. They just look like normal people. And I think when you read all this stuff and you hear all this stuff in your head, that I mean, they are monsters, right? And so you imagine these kind of that you'd be able to look at them and know. But when you when you see that stuff, I mean, at least from my point of view, I I couldn't couldn't read it or predict it. So. Yeah, anyway, worth worth just looking at stuff online if you are interested in it. Like I said, I did watch Bowling for Columbine. It doesn't really cover Columbine much. It covers it a little bit, but um, yeah, much more about guns and gun control, which is still interesting. And I, I thought it was quite a good documentary. It was. I feel like we were talking about it when we were watching it the other night that I feel like it's almost one of the first of that style of documentary that's now become so popular, like where it covers so many different things and it keeps it really interesting. So yes, I recommend that. And yes, that's my references. So thank you so much for listening to this two-parter. Much appreciated. Um, As always, please do follow me over on Instagram at whenitgoeswrongpod or you can drop me an email to whenitgoeswrongpod at gmail.com. Love to hear your feedback on this episode. Love to hear feedback in general. Love any episode requests. So yes, thank you so much for listening. 